Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Our theme song, by the way, is El Alien from Chateau Hayuk's CD titled Nature Loves Courage. And a big thank you to all you guys at Chateau Hayuk for letting us use some of your music here in the Psychedelic Salon. We really, really appreciate it. Well, today we've got a, a real treat for you, I think. We're going to hear from Rick Doblin, who, as most of you already know, is the founder and president of Matt. The Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been supporting psychedelic research and medical marijuana research since 1986. I'm going to keep my introduction as brief as I can today because this program is going to run a little bit long, I'm afraid. It's actually going to run, I guess, about an hour and 15 minutes or so, in case you're wondering. But I believe that Rick's message is not only very important, it's also one of the best articulated statements of a vision for a psychedelic society that I've come across uh, since the first time I read Terrence McKenna's fantastic essay titled Psychedelic Society. And if you haven't read that, by the way, I think you owe it to yourself to check it out. You can, you can find it in several books, uh, like Robert Forte's great anthology, Theogens and the Future of Religion is a good place to find it. A lot of other good stuff in that book, too, by the way. Now, in today's program, well, I'm sure you're going to find Rick's survey of the current state of psychedelic research really fascinating. It's the first part of this talk that I hope you'll pay the closest attention to. That's where Rick explains why we should care about psychedelics. <laughs> okay, I know you think you know why you use these sacred medicines, but I suspect that after hearing Rick's take on this important topic, you're going to come away with a probably a much greater dedication to our sacred medicines than you've ever had before. And when it comes to caring about these substances, Rick is definitely in the vanguard. Uh, for example, how many other people do you know who was instrumental in hiring a lawyer to represent a drug? Not a person. This lawyer represented a drug, and it had never been done before. Well, that's just the kind of challenge that Rick loves. And in this presentation, he's going to tell that story and several others that are not only entertaining, but have strong points to make as well, such as how MAPS had helped uh, Peter Jennings break the story on an ABC uh, special that MTV and Oprah and a whole host of others were actually lying when they tried to convince parents that MDMA burned holes in their kids' brains. And in case you're not into the chemical soup names, MDMA is what ecstasy is supposed to be if it's pure. And it does not cause holes to form in your brain. Get over it. Get the truth. Go to arrowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org, or go to maps.org, M-A-P-S.org, and find out the real facts, you know, if you're still living in that fantasy world that the government's trying to brainwash you with. But hey, Rick can tell this story a lot better than I can, so uh, let's listen to the talk that Rick Doblin gave as one of the Planque Nortri lectures at Burning Man in 2004. His talk is titled, Psychedelics and Marijuana, Therapy. Recreation and politics. Now here's Rick. And without that, I think there's a really good chance that the human species won't make it, the planet will get destroyed. But there is a tremendous amount of hope, and we do have these technologies, and for many of us, they have worked in our individual lives. And so what what has motivated me has in large part been this psychedelic vision, this in some sense the response to the Holocaust. I grew up Jewish, 
uh, distant relatives that were killed, this idea of scapegoating, this idea that we can exterminate some group and somehow that will purify the world, that these kind of cultural insanities can persist and can spread, that there has to be some powerful force that gets down into the psyche that works as somehow releasing these prejudices and helping people to uh, accept their shadows and work further. And I think it can come from art, it can come from meditation, it can come from all sorts of different ways, but I think psychedelics is the royal road to the unconscious. Freud said that about dreams, I think that about psychedelics. And so for me personally, I think psychedelics is one of the crucial leverage points to work on to bring about a better world. And I think one of the reasons that our culture has so suppressed the psychedelics is because there's a recognition that these psychedelics have potential. So when we talk about culture wars, it's going right now with the election, with uh, refighting the Vietnam War, a lot of the culture wars have to do with this sort of hippie generation motivated by psychedelics that had this vision and that was able to use it to promote uh, opposition to the Vietnam War, the environmental movement, uh, feminism. So it's when psychedelics went right that caused the problems. The drug warriors will tell you it's when psychedelics went wrong and people jumped out of the windows, that's what we got to stop. But it's really, I think, the major threat is from when psychedelics went right and people transcended the kind of education that they got when they were young and started asking other questions. So that's my prelude why we should care. Now, that's the global big vision, and it's sort of important to keep that because then we're going to now descend into minute details. So the opportunities to try to bring back psychedelics are starting in incredibly small and in some senses trivial projects with very limited patient populations, single drugs, given under highly restricted circumstances. So what I'd like to do now is give you a sense of where we are in this historical moment with bringing psychedelics back. The psychedelic renaissance is just beginning. It has already started. We have a situation where from the 40s, 50s, 60s, with the rise initially of LSD in 43, and development of psilocybin later in the 50s, we had this flourishing of research. Most of it was focused on how these drugs can affect consciousness, affect the mind, how they affect psychotherapy. A whole undercurrent was the CIA and the mind control research funded studies using the same tools for weapons. So what that right now gets us to say is that these are just tools. And the important thing is the relationship that we establish with them. There's nothing intrinsically healing about a psychedelic drug. Certain cultures want to call peyote a sacrament, or they want to call ayahuasca you know, the drink of the gods, or various of these things. And I think that that's, in some sense, a misunderstanding. The word entheogen has been created to develop, to replace psychedelics or hallucinogens, entheogen meaning the god within. And I think that that's also a word that I prefer not to use because it implies, just as hallucinogen implies these drugs take you away from reality, Entheogen implies these drugs take you to a religious understanding, and it's more complex than that. These are simply tools, and how we use them is really the crucial thing. There's no inherent superiority in my view if it grows from a plant or if it's invented in a laboratory. Others have different views on this, but I think that that dichotomy 
really doesn't hold up. And so it's really how we use these things. And once the psychedelic drugs were really flourishing in the 50s and 60s, comes the culture war, comes the changes people try to put into place, comes the counter-reaction. We have Nixon saying that Timothy Leary is the most dangerous person in America. And the reason is because the tools of consciousness. But I also think that Timothy Leary made one fundamental mistake, which was this whole understanding of counterculture. And it's easy here in Burning to think of ourselves as part of a counterculture, that we have a different way of life, a different openness to sexuality, a different openness to drugs. And I think that self-defining ourselves as a counterculture generates us and them, generates repression, and our task is really to integrate into the mainstream culture that we have to really become part of, we never were alienated from, there is no away, you can't find an island, that was the theme of Aldous Huxley's book, Island, you can't build your island paradise somewhere and assume that you'll stay there unimpeded by the rest of the world, the world has gotten too small, so I think it's really incumbent upon us not to self-identify as the counterculture but to really think of it as maybe an advanced scout for the main culture. And that our mission as an advanced scout is to bring back the information, the things that we've experimented with, and then try to bring the culture along. And so for us, for psychedelics, it's trying to get government permission to do various psychedelic studies that will bring these states of consciousness back into a general accessibility. We're rare in cultures where historical anomaly and that we don't really value highly or even at all this altered states of consciousness, very Western, very rational, very anti-mystical, and I think that that's really unbalanced. So part of bringing psychedelics back is an attempt to address that balance. So where we're at is from the late 60s, early 70s, the FDA in the United States, and the United States through the International Drug Control Treaties has managed to impose a global system of drug control that has completely, from the set, around 1970, 71 to 1990, almost entirely shut down all human experimentation with psychedelics. As we sit here today, 2004, there's not one single study anywhere in the world in which LSD is being given legally to humans. It's Well, yes, there, there is some testing going on with animals with LSD, looking at which receptor sites are activated. So there, there are some animal studies. Um, and just to not avoid controversy, I'd like to say that I think that animal studies um, can be completely justified and that the movement against animal research is really misguided and that we need to approach animal research respectfully, honor the animals that we're killing, except the fact that there are divergences between animals and humans. And so MAPS has in the past funded animal research. We try to avoid it wherever possible. Only when it's necessary by government regulation will we do it. But I think that there is some validity to animal studies. But what we really need is human studies into benefits. If we look at MDMA, which is a good example, right now, if you go to Medline, which lists um, scientific journals all over the world, the top ones that are peer-reviewed, put in MDMA, you'll get over 1,800 papers. There's not a single paper in there about a controlled study of the therapeutic use of MDMA. There's over $100 million has been spent on all of these studies. 
NASA spent so far about $130,000 reviewing all of these studies. And so by spending that money reviewing this, and our reviews are up on the MAPS website, we've submitted them to the FDA, we have captured over $100 million worth of research that we don't need to spend into the risks of these drugs. So it's incumbent upon us then to focus on trying to do the benefits and look at benefit risks in the patient populations that we're looking at. So from 1984, when I first heard about MDMA in 1982, and it seemed to me like such a tremendous discovery because I knew the history of LSD. I sort of woke up to LSD in the early 70s when the research was being shut down. I early on believed that if you took LSD, that somehow or other you were permanently crazy after just one dose. And a friend of mine, and it is, there is some truth to it. Uh, a friend of mine in my high school Russian class, the rumor was that he had taken LSD. And so I would be always looking at him out of the corner of my eye, like, when was he going to betray this fundamental insanity that was going to doom him for the rest of his life? And I, I never really saw it, but I did notice that he was reading uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And I loved to read, and he suggested that I read that book. And after I read it, I told him how wonderful it was, and he told me that some portions of it had been written while the author was under the influence of LSD. I said, I couldn't believe it. That told me that I had been fed a bunch of lies, that there is something beyond just one dose equals insanity in LSD. And so once that started percolating in my mind and I started waking up to it, I noticed the research was being shut down. So I felt like I missed this golden era. And I approached my early LSD experiences with this high-dose psychedelic physical experience. I was going to purify myself. I also saw that the counterculture had carried within it certain strains that were self-destructive, counterproductive, sexist, hierarchical, various things that were... We were trying to put a new world into practice, but we were using old world psyches to do it, and it wasn't completely working. So that meant to me the inner exploration, the inner purification. And so I tried to do a fair amount of high-dose LSD work with the fundamental misconception there that you could do all the work in the altered state. And so I would continually try to do higher and higher doses and trying to go deeper and deeper, and it would get me more and more scared and more and more frozen and unable to really... And then I had this recognition that you really have to integrate, and that's where we're at now. These drugs don't do it by themselves. Larry used to say that if you take LSD, you become enlightened, and then you're part of this whole group that knows more than everybody else. And that's, of course, not actually true, and it's the integration work that's harder and more difficult than the actual experience itself. And whether, uh, we heard the other day about Houston Smith, difference between a religious experience and a religious life. That's the integration piece. So for me, it led to dropping out of college for 10 years and working on getting grounded, working on tripping, studying with Stan Groff, getting into the literature, and trying to really dedicate myself to this. And then I found uh, MDMA in 1982. And there was a situation that it was still legal. So we had this opportunity to do what I thought had been done in the 60s, but a little bit smarter. So with the recognition that the government crackdown was inevitably going to come. So I also, as soon as I discovered MDMA, I also realized, unbeknownst to me, that there was a psychedelic underground of therapists who had continued to work with psychedelics, continued to risk their freedom, continued to work with patients because they thought that that really offered opportunities to heal that they didn't have otherwise, and that the psychedelic underground 
had continued, and at that point was hundreds and thousands of people working with MDMA all over the country, all over the world. And so I was able to, uh, in my idealistic way, there was a book by the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations uh, that was called uh, New Genesis, Shaping the Global Spirituality. And so I decided that I would write a letter to the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and say, in your book, you really talk about this global spirituality, how it's really necessary, and yet you don't mention psychedelics at all in the book, and every new way of killing the military gets virtually unlimited money to develop, but psychedelics, at least in theory, can produce these consciousness changes that can lead towards peace, so would you help? So Robert Mueller, who was the Assistant Secretary General, actually wrote me back and said, yes, I will help. I do agree with what you said. And here's a list of people who are bumps and rabbis that I would like to have you speak with. And I read between the lines and it said, send them MDMA. (laughs) (laughs) Which I did. Because it was legal. We had all these opportunities. We were sending MDMA into Russia, uh, working with Gorbachev's people in Glasnost. We sent into uh, Capitol Hill, right into the Senate office buildings we sent it. We blanketed the place as much as we could. Harvard... You know, leaders of psychiatry, and so we were prepared once the crackdown came. So we actually did a secret safety study with MDMA in '84. Decided not to release it because the information would be uh, a clue to the government that they should crack down. And so we waited till the government acted first, which they did just a few months later. Then we surfaced. I went to Washington, asked for a DEA administrative law judge hearing, which the judge granted, and that started the first lawsuit that, Ma- that, that I was ever involved with against the government, which on the factual level, we won. The judge actually said, MDMA should be in Schedule 3, doctors should still be able to prescribe it, and it should be illegal for recreational use, but it should be widely available in therapeutic use. And the head of the DEA said, forget this, this is just a recommendation, I don't have to take it, and fuck you. And so he put it in Schedule 1, we sued him because his rationale wasn't right. We won in the Court of Appeals, then he found another way to put it back in. So it became clear then that our only way route, our only route through was the work of the FDA. And when we think about the government, it's easy to think about the government as not us, monolithic, single opinion, opposition. And it's not that way. So we know that we've got three branches of power. The U.S. government is multiple sources of power competing against each other, fighting against each other. And so it's important, again, as not identifying as counterculture, thinking about which parts of the government can we work with. One part was the IRS. Ironically, the IRS lets people create nonprofit organizations where you can give people tax deductions for giving you money to do stuff that the government would rather you not do. And so, to be able to think uh, that that was a possibility. So I thought, yes. So I was able to get a, create a nonprofit. And then also from that, we started recognizing that the Food and Drug Administration is likely to be our key ally. Not because they're interested in psychedelics, not because they're interested in marijuana, but because they're interested in science, more so than ideology. And that is still true today. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Czar's Office for DEA, science is not their highest priority. Repression is their highest priority. And they will twist science in the service of repression. The FDA, however, is comfortable with drugs that have dual uses. That they can be recreational drugs, drugs of abuse, but also in certain circumstances how they're used have medical uses. 
And so our strategy is fundamentally based on working with the FDA and assuming that they will still prioritize science over politics. And there's been one worrisome sign, which is in female reproductive rights. That's where the religious right and the Bush administration really is trying to cramp down, clamp down as much as they can on the FDA. So there was a, uh, a drug, Plan B, it was called, it was for a contraceptive drug the day after uh, women had sex, you take the pill and you won't get pregnant. And the advisory committee recommended that be approved. The head of the FDA said no. So that's a little bit of a worrisome sign that politics is now really getting down, reaching down into the FDA. But it hasn't reached all the way down the operating president. So still at the moment, the FDA strategy makes sense and is worth investing time, energy, and millions of dollars as a wedge to open the door. Now, a few people can make a difference also. So in, eight, in um, 1989 and 1990, the staff at the FDA controlled the regulation of Schedule One drugs, psychedelics and marijuana, shift over. And it was a new group of people who were given the responsibility. And I did part of my PhD dissertation at the Kennedy School of Government was on how this happened and who these people were. And so I interviewed them up and down the FDA hierarchy, and it turns out that they were looking to try to expedite new ways to speed drugs through the FDA system without hiring new people. And they had to have some actual drugs to work with, to demonstrate as models. And nobody was really doing much with Schedule One drugs, and the group that was reviewing them didn't really like them that much, and so they gave them up, as well as some other drug categories, to this new division. And that was God's, so they didn't really want to open the door explicitly to psychedelics, but they somehow gave control over psychedelics and marijuana to this group of people. And starting in 1990, uh, Rick Strassman got permission for a study with DMT. That was the first psychedelic research in over 20 years, where psychedelics were given to humans. Then in 92, we got permission for the first MDMA study, which was a safety study that Charlie Grove did at UCLA. And that was a bargain with the FDA, because we really didn't want to work with safety studies, because millions of people had taken MDMA, hundreds of thousands of therapists had used it, we knew how to work with it, we knew it was safe. But what the FDA said is that we don't care about the fact that this drug is upside down the way drugs are normally developed. They're normally developed first in animals, well, first in laboratories, then you get in animals, then you get a few thousand people, and you get data, and then they release it, and then millions of people get it, and then you discover that one in 100,000 die from this or that, and that's how drugs get developed, and that's how we learn about their risks. But with marijuana, with drugs like MDMA, millions of people are using them. We already know the one in a million risk of somebody overheating at a rave and dying from hyperthermia, or the two in a million risk, these are just estimates, but you know, from hyponitremia, drinking too much water. So we already know that, but the FDA said, here's the deal, you gotta, we'll let you take this drug through the FDA, but you have to look at it like any other drug, which means you have to assume you know nothing, you have to prove everything to us, and you have to start from the very beginning. So. I said, sure, we'll do that, that's our ticket. And they said, in principle, we will let you do what you want to do, which is a study in end-stage cancer patients with 12 months or less to live with pain and anxiety. So I said, do your safety studies first, and then we'll let you do that study. So a whole series of safety studies were done through the 90s, and after 20 years of work, starting in 84, in 2004, um, Michael Minhofer and Annie Minhofer over there, we're able to get permission 
for a MAP-sponsored study of the therapeutic use of MDMA in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And when Michael first started talking to me about it, his first thing was, I want to do work with psychedelics. What country do you think it would be good to do it in? Where can we set up an offshore clinic? How can we do it? And my response was, we've got to do it here in the United States. Let's try here. And I think it can be done. So it turned out to be way harder than we thought, way slower. But we now have one study in the world where MDMA is being used in a patient population. We have initially a study in Spain, which was approved a few years before that, with women survivors of sexual assault with MDMA. And that study was going really pretty well. And we had a series of articles in the media and the Spanish um, anti-drug authority intimidated the hospital to shut the study down. So in Spain, where they have socialized medicine, the anti-drug people and the medical people are more under the same organization. So they have more leverage, the anti-drug people. They couldn't do that in the United States. We've had a series of other developments. Now, just about six months ago, at UCLA, Charlie Grove has gotten permission for a study of psilocybin in the treatment of advanced cancer patients with pain and anxiety. So that's two. And then about um, five years ago, first therapy study was with psilocybin in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's at University of Arizona, Tucson. So in a way, we've talked uh, Thursday about Ibogaine and how Ibogaine is an uh, addiction interrupter. You know, certain kind of compulsive behavior patterns, psilocybin can help interrupt. And it was being promoted by the doctors as pharmacological treatment. They weren't really talking about psilocybin therapy. They were just saying there's certain receptor sites. You hit them with psilocybin. It breaks these obsessive patterns. And the government saw that as less threatening than the altered state, that's what we're really going for. That's where the healing comes from. So that was our first therapy study. So now we have three studies, and we're on the verge with uh, John Helper, who's right there, who's at Harvard Medical School. The ultimate symbol, I think, of transformation, of really the Renaissance being back, is we look back at Harvard. Where many people think of the whole psychedelic revolution as going off the track with Timothy Leary. And he got kicked out of Harvard in, in 1963. A student of his, Walter Pampey, who did the famous Good Friday experiment, looking at the use of psilocybin versus placebo to produce religious experience, whether psychedelic could produce genuine mystical experience, and proved that it did. Walter Pampey stayed at Harvard until 1965. So like the proverbial Jews in the desert wandering for 40 years, we have been locked out of the labs at Harvard for 39 years. And we have got a project that's been reviewed by the Institutional Review Board at McLean Hospital at Harvard twice, and they're waiting for a report from an oncologist, but they've given us provisional approval for this study. So I think that in 2005, we will be able to start a study looking at advanced cancer patients, 12 months or less to live with MDMA. And that is really going to be the mark of the new era being here. And we can screw it up, but I don't think that we will. And that is the sort of grand slam home run to get this study started at Harvard. Now, around the world, there are projects that are not, they're, they're somewhat similar. So we have, you know, ayahuasca is being studied in Peru for the treatment of addiction. We have ayahuasca being studied also in the Netherlands. Uh, other psychedelics are being studied. Ibogaine is being used. 
um, ayahuasca is being used for religious experiences. There's actually uh, a study looking at psilocybin now for religious experience at a location at a prestigious university in the United States where a study has been approved looking at spiritual use of psilocybin. But there's not that much happening around the world. For a long time, when we were blocked in the U.S., really we had an international strategy to try to start research. We were working with the um, ex-chief uh, psychiatrist of the Israeli Defense Forces to try to start a study in Israel with MDMA for post-traumatic stress. The idea there is to eventually lead to uh, Palestinian Jewish raves and solve the, <laughs> get the culture of life. I think, I think really it's not, for me, a joke. It's this idea that the culture of death, which is what they enshrined there, what's more powerful than the culture of death? The culture of life and celebration, the dance we see out here on the fly, those things have the power for the young people to make them really move through barriers. And we also know that in northern England, when MDMA was first starting hitting in England, that the race were the only places where the Catholic and Protestant kids got together and crossed those boundaries. The, the rave movements are pretty much uh, interracial, sexually open. In the U.S., there, there's just a lot of evidence that MDMA in these celebratory contexts can really bring about certain kinds of, of crossing boundaries and peace that wasn't there before. So, again, I want to say that focusing Matz's work politically mostly on medical research, but that there are these larger implications, and that's where we're headed in a way. So we have this total into therapeutic use. Now, pharmaceutical companies will tell you that it costs $800 million per drug to get it approved through the FDA. So how can we possibly think that we will be able to get MDMA through the FDA? Where are we going to come up with $800 million? Well, another part of my dissertation was looking at where this number comes from. And so the first thing to know is that more than half of this number comes from money that the pharmaceutical companies would have made if they would have put the money into research into the bank and earned 11% interest per year annualized. Now, that's their opportunity cost. So they want the drugs to cost, they want people to think the drugs cost $800 million so they can charge a lot of money for these drugs. But they don't. Now, the other thing is that they investigate hundreds of drugs to get one or two approved by the FDA. So they amortize the cost of all the failures into the costs, the ones that make it through. So then you get back down, you get back down, and then they do all this work into the risks. So I've already mentioned that we have over $100 million has been spent by governments over the world about what's wrong with MDMA. So here, again, it's taking the demonization of MDMA, turning it to our advantage, studying everything about the risks, and we've now captured over $100 million. So it comes down to the fact that if we do clinical trials looking at patient populations that would have roughly 600 patients in total, which other drugs have been approved for that, that we're somewhere like five to seven million dollars to get MDMA through the system in five to seven years. So I think it's within our grasp. We want to talk about medical marijuana. The people who have spent money on the medical marijuana initiatives Peter Lewis, George Soros, and others have spent about $12 million so far since 1996 when California passed Prop 215. That's a vast waste of social resources. If we could have put that money into medical marijuana research, we have marijuana approved today as medicine. 
So the money is out there. This year, Peter Lewis is investing $7 million into marijuana policy project and various initiative campaigns. Um, he gave us $250,000 for MDMA. George Soros doesn't like psychedelics. He's comfortable with marijuana, so he's not a source. But there are resources in this community, among us. We can, we can make it. But the money is not the obstacle. It's not easy to raise, but the money is not the obstacle. Then the other thing is that once a drug is approved, the FDA protects what's called off-label prescription, which means that the drug is approved for one thing, but the practice of medicine requires physicians to be able to prescribe the drug for anything else that they want. The government bylaw cannot say MDMA approved for post-traumatic stress disorder cannot be used in treating anxiety associated with depression. And about 40 to 50% of drugs currently prescribed today are prescribed off-label. Most of that is in different doses, different schedules, but a lot of that is for different indications. So that the FDA does have lots of different regulatory mechanisms. So in order to sort of think like the FDA, and it was actually a pleasure since I'm so used to trying to get out from under rules, I'm so used to try to find loopholes, to try to break the law, not get to jail, to try to figure out how to do what mass needs to do. I'm so good at sort of looking for loopholes that I put on the other side and I try to become an authoritarian trying to clamp down on psychedelic research and psychedelic medical use and become better than the DEA because I know psychedelics better than they do. How can we limit psychedelics to very specific circumstances so that the government is not scared that medical use is the same as legalization? And that is their concern about medical marijuana. And it's not an inappropriate concern. When you look at California, you look at the kind of reasons people can get marijuana for. Practically anybody can get marijuana for practically anything. And medical use is pretty similar to legalization. So I wanted to make it so that that wasn't the case with psychedelics. And the one advantage, the one crucial difference with psychedelics is that the model that we talk about is that psychedelics are administered under supervision by people who know about psychedelics. They're not take-home drugs. Marijuana is a take-home drug. You get it, you use it at home, you don't have to have the doctor there for six hours helping you the whole time you're stoned and waiting until you're down. It's, it's not necessary. So that's the clue right there. It's the difference between a take-home drug and a drug that needs to be given under supervision. And what that then leads to is the psychedelic clinic model, where psychedelics are to be prescribed only in certain facilities that meet certain requirements for staffing, for a bathroom next to each treatment room where you don't have to go out in the open to get to the bathroom, that there are um, all sorts of regulations on the facility itself and then regulations on who can prescribe it. Doctors, do they, aren't going to be any doctor. Right now, most of the, John, but most, I think it's most of the prescriptions for like Zoloft and Paxil are not coming from psychiatrists. They're coming from interns, general practitioners who have heard about people having depression using these drugs. So I think with, uh, with the psychedelics that their use should be limited not just to psychiatrists but even to a more narrow class of psychiatrists who've been through special psychedelic psychotherapy training which it's been incumbent upon us to, as the researchers, to develop these training programs to certify who's going to be able to do it and to do it in a certain way. So that when you do that, 
you can have your psychiatrist with special training run the clinic, but the clinic can be run by psychologists and others to actually do the therapy. It doesn't need to be the psychiatrist that only does the therapy. The people who do the therapy who directly interact with the patients also need to have their special training. But we don't want to give this to the doctors to monopolize. That's a disaster, and every little specialty does want to try to monopolize its, you know, its ability to pursue its uh, profit-making service. So we want to cut that, nip that in the bud, and recognize that a lot of people can be good sitters. So we, so that's the psychedelic clinic model. Now, what makes that so valuable is that that also leads to a view towards general legalization, which is that, and I'd like to attribute this back to Timothy Leary. And he had something, I think it was like 1965 that he said this. And he talked about how we all are familiar with you have to get a driver's license to drive a car. And if you want to drive an airplane, you have to get a different license. And so psychedelics should be like that. That getting a license for marijuana should be pretty simple. It's like your driver's license. But getting a license for psychedelics should be more difficult. And that you should have, just like you have to have a driver as Ed, where you have to demonstrate that you can drive with somebody who's in the car with you and watching you drive, that your first session should be under supervision in a psychedelic clinic. That you don't need to be a patient, you don't need to be a family member of a patient, you just need to want to use psychedelics for personal growth. You go to a psychedelic clinic, you have your first session, this is a problem because it costs money, it's expensive, there's a barrier to entry, it's not a right, it's a privilege, but you can do that. And then if you have not flipped out, not had an allergic reaction, the doctor says, yes, you can now buy these drugs at the pharmacy for use on the playa burning or wherever you like. You can use them in your church, in your temple, however you want, group settings, individual settings. But the psychedelic clinic model leads to a kind of responsible, slow, step-by-step approach towards general legalization. So this psychedelic clinic model is one that I think makes sense. We know that there have been methadone <coughs> treatment centers. If you look at, I have a couple little kids, and I was looking at the regulations for nursery schools, for preschools, and it's not like anybody can open up a preschool. There are a lot of regulations for preschools. We also know about hospice centers. We've had the rise of the birthing centers. We've had the rise of the hospice movement. And these birthing centers, hospice centers, are highly regulated. So the psychedelic model for clinics is not something that regulators are totally foreign to. It's just a different kind of a altered state's experience will take place within it. And I think what's different between now and the 60s is that we didn't have birthing centers. Birth was not something that took place in polite society. Women were knocked out. My dad's a pediatrician. He wasn't even allowed in the delivery room when I was born. And death was something that you didn't talk about. Uh, my aunt died when she was 21 of cancer, and she didn't even know she had cancer. We weren't supposed to talk about it. So we've sort of humanized birth and death. And the big part in the middle is life, is rites of passage. And psychedelics fit within that. So that's really where we're at to try to, to make that happen. Now, with this model, I think that there's a, um, a sequence of steps that are going to have to be taken to reach that. So to give you just a sense, what is the drug development process? What you first need to do is small pilot studies in about uh, 20 to 50 people in your therapeutic group to just say, proof of principle, can you really help people? How many non-drug therapy hours does it take? What kind of 
outcome measures are you going to use, what kind of outcome measures will the FDA consider to be valid. So you do these pilot studies, and that's the stage that we're at with the PTSD study. Michael and Annie will tell you more about that study, so I'm not going to really go into that. But from the pilot studies, then you move up to the next step, which is called developing a treatment manual. Because psychedelic psychotherapy is exactly that. It's not the psychedelic only. It's not psychotherapy only. And so to do this in a scientific way, and I'd like to say that when you work with the irrational, when you work with the unconscious, I think it's especially incumbent upon us to layer in scientific. And that science really is something holy about it. Even though science excludes a lot, there's something very deeply spiritual about science. And so it's the marriage of science and spirituality, science and the unconscious that will move us through the system and, and bring us more into wholeness. And, uh, and so what that means practically is the FDA, they don't think about psychotherapy. You have to standardize the drug. How much drug are you being, are giving to each of your patient and that each of the subjects? The National Institute of Mental Health, which other than the Army and the CIA had funded the early research with psychedelics, they have what's called a whole technology to, call, to develop what's called treatment manuals. And they standardize the treatment. Because there's many different ways to work with psychedelics. And so what we're going to try to do is develop a particular way that we like, that we think is most effective, and then in our research, everybody has to follow that model. And not only do they have to follow it, but they have to be videotaped doing the therapy, and there has to be blinded independent raters that has a checklist. You know, did they say, close your eyes and go inside at the right time? You know, or it's going to be so hard to develop this. How do you standardize an intuitive, emotional process? But that is our challenge. We have to standardize through the treatment manual what the treatment is and standardize the drug dosage. So, again, this idea is National Institute of Mental Health, FDA, we're trying to move into the government systems, move into places that have banished psychedelics but have worked with them in the past. Once you've developed the treatment manual, that's our step two for our next set of pilot studies, then you go into the large-scale phase three trials. And those are the studies in 200 or 300 people where you really prove safety and efficacy. And the way the FDA says that you have to do two of those independently. And our strategy is going to try to do one in the United States and one somewhere in Europe or Israel so that we can then submit to the European medical agencies the data from Europe and also from the U.S. because they all want at least one done in their general region. Now, those studies, the problem with psychedelics from a scientific point of view is that it's very difficult to give somebody a psychedelic and have them not know it. How do, you, how do you do a double-blind study with a psychedelic drug? And it's really, how do you do it? Well, I mean, Michael and I will tell you that, it, that in the MDMA study, there's one person that doesn't know for sure if they've got the MDMA or placebo. The therapy a lot, listening to music, taking time out of your, your busy life, lying down and resting, having therapists that, that you trust, that's powerful in itself. But the best way that we've come up with, and negotiations already with FDA, so this is pretty well something, it's called the dose response study, where instead of an inactive placebo, you compare uh, MDMA versus some tranquilizer or something. The therapist will know, the people will know. You have a, a duty to, in the informed consent form, prepare people for what experience they're going to have. You can't completely 
keep them in the dark so that people read the informed consent form, they're going to be able to tell the difference. But it's harder to tell the difference between 25 milligrams of MDMA, 75 milligrams of MDMA, or 125 milligrams of MDMA. That's called a dose-response study. And when you do that, what makes it difficult for us is we have to show that the people that got the 125 milligrams do better than the people that got the 75 milligrams, do better than the people that got the 25 milligrams. But I think we can do that. And so that's the basic design. But because these things are so politically controversial, we have to add yet a fourth group, which is the best legally available alternative treatment. And what's administered what's called open label, which means that the patients and the doctors know what they're getting. There's really no way to say, here's your Prozac, take it every day for the next three months, and there's no doctors meeting with you, there's no therapy session, but you know, is that MDMA or not? People will know, but it's okay. So we are preparing to, to do this design, the best available alternative with the three dose levels of MDMA, and that's the design. It makes it more expensive, it makes it larger, but we're dealing with a panicked, frightened, misinformed culture that has a lot of resistances. And so we have to go more than the extra mile to satisfy their concerns. And over time, as we satisfy them, as we build trust, we may be able to shed some of these extra steps. But right now, we can't shed any of them. So that's the general design. And that's why it will take roughly five to seven million dollars and roughly five to seven million, five to seven years. And that's for each, yeah, maybe five to seven million years, that's possible. <laughs> If so, it's still worth the effort. That's the fundamental thing, which is that disconnecting success from happiness and linking it to just giving it a good try. I think that's what's been helpful for me personally for working over these 20 years and only getting, failing for 19 years and finally getting a study approved in the 20th, is that the failures really I didn't perceive as failures. They were successes in pissing off the government, making them respond to what we were doing, engaging them, giving me something you know, to do, the next step, that that was all that could be done and then that was a success in another step. So I think that that's the key here. And with this model, we have to do this for each individual uh, drug as well. So sometimes people come out of the woodwork that you didn't expect. We have allies out there that we don't even realize just as much as we have enemies that are lurking, waiting for us to make any mistake. So, for instance, there are a group of people that have cluster headaches. And these are very severe. A lot of the medications don't work for them. And independently, they've discovered that psilocybin breaks, and LSD even more so than psilocybin, breaks the cycle of cluster headaches. And they have about 100 testimonials for this. And so I was contacted by a representative of this patient group, and he said, can you help us do any research? And it turns out that one of the women who was treated successfully is married to the number 28 employee of Microsoft. And so we got a $50,000 grant for the LSD study, the LSD psilocybin study. We're going to use both. They, LSD does work better, but it's harder to get. So they want to do the study to show psilocybin works because people can also get mushrooms. So our effort at Harvard is once we get the MDMA cancer patient study approved, we're following it on with an LSD attempt to restart LSD research. Also where... LSD was so notorious at Harvard. And And Andrew Sewell, who's, I don't know if he's here right now, but he's here at Burning Man. Okay, he's going to be the the doctor to lead the project with LSD and psilocybin. So we've got these plans to move forward in that way. 
And what I'd like to then do is just leave you with a few basic overview concepts about how I think we need to do this, then we can have questions, and then we'll hear Michael and Annie. But the fundamental concept here for me is drug development in the open. This is fundamentally different than the way the pharmaceutical companies do it. Pharmaceutical companies compete with each other to get a drug to market so that they can be the first to patent it, they can have an exclusive monopoly on it, and then they can get all these monopoly rents and make all this money. Psychedelics, MDMA in particular, it's non-patentable, invented in 1912, patents expired. We've talked so much in the public about the potential uses that I hired a patent attorney to examine, could somebody get a use patent? That's what happened with Ibogaine. First person, Howard Lotsoff, used Ibogaine to treat addiction and learned that it worked for him, and so nobody had ever talked about it like that. He got a use patent for that. There has been so much cross-lawsuits among people in the Ibogaine movement that it's almost destroyed their research effort. They've set them back 15 years. They're just now getting momentum again. So I think it's kind of difficult. I'm really nervous about trying to get patent protection for things. And I want to make sure if MAPS does this all in the public domain, could somebody else just say, well, we're going to get the patent. So the patent attorney has told me, no, that can't be done because it's all in the public domain. So drug development in the open. And what that also means is that we put our protocols up on the internet so that we're sharing our basic analysis of the data so that other scientists can use it, pharmaceutical companies. If they want to come in with their resources and feed us to the market, you know, I'll go to the beach more often. That would be great. You know, if they take it. So not only does it mean drug development in the open, putting the protocols out there, but this is also something that for me, it's been necessary and imperative to talk to the media about it. Pharmaceutical companies don't like to do that. We have run into a lot of problems where you get mischaracterized when you talk to the media. Something that's difficult for me personally is that I do believe in the recreational use of drugs as something that I grew up on, that I have, I think is therapeutic. I think we have these artificial distinctions. This is therapy, this is religion, this is recreational, and this is good, and this is good, and recreation is bad. That's not actually the case. You know, dancing all night can be incredibly therapeutic. It can be spiritual. So I think that trying to talk about that in public with a... Um, Skeptical media has made me branded Timothy Leary in the 80s, Timothy Leary in the 90s, different kind of, it's been difficult. And so any social movement needs multiple agencies, multiple groups taking different approaches. And so there's the Hefter Research Institute, which is the other major organization. It's not a membership organization. Um, so all of you should consider joining MAPS. Hefter goes for larger funders to do their studies. And they stay away from medical marijuana. They stay away from talking about the drug war. They stay away from controversy. They stay away from media. But they are doing some very important studies. So I see maps as like the, the Marines landing on the beachhead. We take the flag. And then if we got a bullet, then they come on and continue. And so far, it's been really fortunate that we're still around. We're still working. And yet, I think there's this really important recognition. Again, we're part of a movement. We're all working together, and so maps and have to collaborate as much as we can on protocol design in every way possible. But it's MAP that mostly tries to speak out in the media. So I think drug development in the open has the other advantage in that the government and the DEA, one time I took MDMA to try to figure out how the DEA looks at me. And to try to go into the enemy, go into them, and see how can I be safe. 
And the main thing I realized is that the DEA, by their habits, their whole training, is they're interested in what's under the rock. What is being hidden from them? What is being done in secret? If you come out in the open and tell them what you're doing and engage them in that way, a lot of times you're safe. You're actually safer so that I've not been harassed. I speak out in public how I've done MDMA and I will continue to do MDMA and I hope my children will do MDMA. I speak, at least not stealing from my stash yet, but... (laughs) 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 But I've taken some pretty clear statements about my personal use and I've not seen this negative reaction because I think I'm engaging the government in a public way about the research. Now, yes? Oh, okay. I want to make one other major distinction here between psychedelics and marijuana. The key thing here is that with psychedelics, there are multiple points of manufacture so that MAPS has our own independent supply of MDMA. And in fact, the two safety studies funded by the government, funded by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, we donated the MDMA to. And they use our own MDMA because we have the best MDMA. And also that means we can use their data to submit directly to FDA. FDA isn't going to worry it's a different drug. We have our own psilocybin. We have the world's most expensive gram of psilocybin. It costs $12,250 for one gram. That was after uh, all sorts of negotiations with FDA and the pharmaceutical company that manufactured for us. The MDMA, we actually made 1,000 grams back in 1985 for $4 a gram. And we have almost all of it left sitting in a safe. I've never seen it. I will never be able to touch it. <laughs> we can't say where it is. Uh, LSD, we have um, Richard Jensen was able to import LSD from Switzerland. And so marijuana is the only drug that the government has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana, which they restrict to only kind of studies that they want. So we've just recently launched a lawsuit against the DEA for blocking our efforts for medical marijuana. We've tried for three years to start our own marijuana farm at UMass Amherst. Uh, We've tried for a year to import pot from the Dutch Office of Medicinal Cannabis. And the government has not said yes or no to either the UMass Amherst or the importation. And we've tried for over a year to buy $70 worth of marijuana. Seven uh, 10 grams at $7 a gram is what they would charge us for vaporizer research. Vaporizers eat marijuana up and they don't burn it. That's the key to getting marijuana through the FDA. Vaporizers are a non-smoking delivery system. The pot doesn't get burned. You don't have the particulate matter. You don't have a combustion product. We can deal with the safety issues with vaporized marijuana and people would still grow the plant in their backyard and use it that way. They don't have to buy it from a pharmaceutical company. And we've been able to do kind of circuitous and run and we have a human study with vaporizers starting next month in October UC San Francisco Donald Abrams is starting the first human vaporizer study ever. once we get our own independent source of supply of marijuana then we're going to be ready to launch the five million dollar five year plan with marijuana as well but right now we've got the lawsuits against DEA and the lawsuits against NIDA National Institutes of Health and uh, Health and Human Services and the government is doing its best job to resist the lawsuit. So it's not clear to me when we'll break the government monopoly, but it's very difficult for a Republican administration to say, we like monopolies. We want to keep our marijuana. We do not want private industry to get in there and pay for research papers. So it puts them in a difficult circumstance. There's a U.S. Supreme Court case coming up uh, that they're going to be hearing. It's the Rage versus Ashcroft, where it's the Controlled Substances Act was declared unconstitutional when it applied to medical marijuana patients. 
growing their own marijuana in states that had approved it. They said there was no interstate commerce, and therefore patients had the right, and the DEA didn't have the right to go in. So what we're doing is our track record of failure to do medical marijuana research is part of an amicus friend of court brief that we're submitting to the Supreme Court to say you can't justifiably say that the state system, the state initiatives isn't right because we have to go through the FDA when the FDA is being actively blocked by other branches of the government. So that's where we're at with marijuana. That's why we've made so much more success with the psychedelics. So the key is drug development in the open and once that we've been able to do that, the next step, and I think this is very crucial, is that we have to be the leaders about what is the risks, as well as the benefits. We have to prove the benefits, but we have to become the trusted source by government, by parents, by the media, to the risks of MDMA. So I was, MAPS has consistently tried to understand what's the story about the neurotoxicity of MDMA. We funded the first monkey study ever with MDMA, looking at what's going on with serotonin in monkeys. We did the first human study, which involves spinal taps. And so I figured two things. And I was the first volunteer to get a spinal tap to see how my serotonin was. So I took strength from the war on drugs. And I figured, all right, well, I'm a soldier for drugs. And so I can uh, take a little pain and Donate. And then I thought, I'm a man, I don't have to give birth to a child, women have to do that, it hurts them a lot. And so I can take a little bit of pain, give birth to some of my spinal fluid, and give it to the scientists. So with that kind of mental thought, I was able to recruit about 30 people and we started the first spinal tap studies. Then we started the first uh, PET scan studies where we got radioactively tagged dots. So what I do believe is the case is that MDMA research is more dangerous than MDMA. <laughs> And the final proof of that is I was at a sleep study at UCLA looking at whether my sleep architecture had changed because of my use of MDMA. This was in, uh, at UCLA. And I was like wired to all of these electrodes, the electrodes on my body, sent waves as I was sleeping and then as the earthquake <laughs> And I was really, it was kind of scary. So there have been so many risks from this MDMA research. And it is sort of true, proving true that the risks of MDMA are pretty trivial in terms of neurotoxicity and in clinical research we can control so there's not going to be overheating, not going to be hyperthermia. The risks are really pretty minimal. But we have to be the ones that look at risks. And so that okay. okay. All right. So so the key thing at Harvard was to show them that the risks of MDMA right now come down to neurocognitive consequences. What does MDMA do to memory long term? That's the issue. The government is not believable about risks. Kids don't believe them. We have to be the ones that are experts in risks. And I think that's the balance point that we really need to keep. And then the other point is that we need to really be strategic about patients that we work with. So marijuana for AIDS patients, that's how it first came out. The AIDS patients are not us, they're them. But MDMA for PTSD, that's a lot better. Any of us could be traumatized in some way or other, but that's still not very many people. But MDMA for cancer, psilocybin for cancer, for fear of death, that's striking right at everybody's fears. How are we going to handle our own personal death? And even the drug warriors are scared more of dying than they are of drugs. So that by strategically choosing this particular patient population to move forward with, with the PTSD study, I think we have a chance of winning public support for this research. And we also have to be strategic in leveraging funds. So where as much as possible we need to get government to start paying for stuff. 
that's why we want to do the treatment manual, get the National Institute of Mental Health to pay for research. We have to have an international strategy, which, because of the U.S. government control clampdown all over the world, it's really been difficult for us to develop an international strategy. We are the, the center of the octopus here, and so I think strategically we really need to focus mostly on the United States. And then the other thing is the focus on children and the way the drug war is supposed to protect the kids. And that's where I think we need to develop, talk about rites of passage, rituals that cultures traditionally have used to educate children about psychedelics, about all states, about their culture. And so rather than say, we want to legalize psychedelics for people who are 21 or over, what we want to use, and I bet you most people you won't know this, but in 23 states, parents can legally give alcohol to their children. It's the exception to the age limit. Children can't go to a bar if you're under 21, you can't get, but your parents in 23 states can give you alcohol in order to teach you about how to use it responsibly. That's why those laws were created. You can have wine at home, your parents aren't going to go to jail. So we need to adopt that model with marijuana and with psychedelics and talk about how rites of passage rituals that are lacking in our culture need to be created. We'll have rites of passage rituals for terminal illness and also for young people. So we have to take that head on. And then finally, I think we can't just talk about research in the abstract. We have to talk about how the drug war impacts our ability to do research. So that's, I think my bottom line is that I can't just say I want to do this one study for this one patient population. So, so that's the overall general strategy. It's only possible because donations to MAPS from large donors and small donors. I'd like to encourage all of you, if you believe in the vision, to consider becoming MAPS members. We have a bulletin. We have all sorts of events that we're starting to do. Uh, well, the question is really, we can't hear it, is are we scared that as we start developing these technologies that the powers of coercion and control, military industrial complex, they will take advantage of what we want to do and twist it? And the answer is, no, I'm not scared of that, because they already tried that. That was the whole story of the mind control experiments. And what, and what they found is that you can disorient people with LSD, you can you know, make army people march in crooked lines with their weapons when you spray them with BZ and other drugs, but then really these drugs, you, you cannot all, I mean, instead of the torture that we did to the Iraqi prisoners, if we would have given them all MDMA, would we have gotten more information? Probably. But I'm not scared if the government does that. I would like them to. So I'm not really scared that we'll get subliminal amulet or, or so I think that that's something we need to be aware of. But that's really been the secret history of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. It has been that underground kind of military secret research. I think we have more to fear from not going forward than from going forward and worrying maybe they're going to co-opt us somehow. If the pharmaceutical companies want to take it over, all the better. I mean, they will market it, they will make it faster, they have the resources, but basically they're not going to do it because Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, it's a daily drug. These drugs are designed not to treat depression. These drugs are designed to make money for the pharmaceutical companies. What is the best drug to make money for pharmaceutical companies? A drug that you have to take every day for a long period of time, and then when you stop taking it, a big percentage of people, the problems come back. So that's what they've got. When you give psychedelic psychotherapy, you give a lot of non-drug psychotherapy, and you give one or two or three MDMA or LSD <coughs> sessions, and people are sometimes significantly better. So it competes with the financial interests of the pharmaceutical companies. 
So I'm not scared of the pharmaceutical industry to take I would like them to invest money. They can they can tweak the MDMA molecule and patent some new thing, and they can say it's ten times better. But we know MDMA works. I don't think they'll have one that's a little bit better. But let them go. That that's that's why drug development in the open is not something that I'm cautious about. It's something that we actively try to work for. Uh, I, I think that the idea is that people have a basic right. Okay, the question was how to affect their consciousness as they will, to worship God in their own fashion, or to be more loving with the help of exogenous agents and so on. Yeah, so you know, why we come together? Drugs for medicines with drugs as a basic human right to explore your own nature. And I think that those will develop, but I think that our culture will do better at resisting everybody's basic human right to alter their consciousness than they will drugs for medicine. They'll also do, and in the middle is, drugs for religious purposes by organized religion. So we have the Native American church use of peyote, but that doesn't mean that I can go get mescaline or grow peyote and I want to worship in my own particular way. That's really threatening to the government is to have everybody their own religion having the basic core freedom. So I think that we will come together. We are going to, we have massive amounts of fear and misinformation that we have to erode. And people really have put science as their religion more than many other things. If we can use science to chip away at the fears, the cognitive literary articles will become more and more uh, appreciated by people. They'll be less fearful of them. So I think that we need to make those arguments now as loudly as we can, but look forward mostly to the successes being made with the medical use. And that's been the case with marijuana so far, if we look at it. Well, that, that's a really good question. Will the pharmaceutical company actively um, work against us? And so it just so happens that um, a friend of mine that I went to college with, his dad is the number three person in five world's largest pharmaceutical companies. And another friend of mine, my, one of my wife's college friends, married a senior research scientist also at Pfizer. Pfizer developed Zoloft for PTSD. So when we started doing the MDMA study, we went over to their office for dinner, and I said, it's kind of funny now. I feel like I'm working against your interests now. We're competitors. And he just laughed. He said, we do not take you seriously. You are not going to hurt us. You are getting nowhere. There's so much opposition. We're going to make so many billions of dollars. You know, you're like insignificant. So I don't think that they're actively going to try to suppress what we're doing. At some point, when it starts looking like it might work, you know, then there will be. And so the early partnership for Drug Free America to keep certain drugs illegal was funded by alcohol, tobacco, and pharmaceutical industry. So that became public and that was too embarrassing. So there will be a certain kind of opposition, but at this stage, I mean, we might think, yeah, psychedelics, MDMA really works and we'll be able to do it. And they think, First off, it doesn't work. It makes you crazy. It gives you brain damage. FDA will never approve it. So right now, pharmaceutical company is not really accurate with the board doing anything. But, but maybe at some point. But then if we get to the integrity of the FDA, what kind of pressure will be able to be put on the FDA and on Congress in other ways? I don't know. So, But again, we have to really go for people wanting medicines for things that they are really scared about. So if we can say, you can have a more peaceful death, you can enjoy the last years of your life, you know, you can get your life back after PTSD, I think that we'll be able to win the public relations battle. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the, the Ecstasy Rising show from Peter Jennings was this watershed event because it was actually honest analysis 
put on major network TV about SC. And we worked with them, being, you know, for uh, about two years on that study, on that show before they did it. And a lot of people wondered did Peter Jennings ever do MDMA? And we, uh, I don't know that he ever did. But I do know that other people working on the show had experience with it, knew what was going on. But more importantly, the research that we were able to show them convinced them. And so after that show came out, the drug czar filed a formal protest against ABC. As did Congressman Mark Souter, who is mostly known as the, the rabid right-wing anti-drug guy who made it so that if you have a drug conviction, you can't get a student loan. You can be a rapist, a murderer, any kind of criminal. You can go to college. Government will help you. But if you smoke a joint and got busted in high school, no money for you. So they formally protested ABC. But ABC actually worked with us on their response back to the drug star's office. And they, they got... Yeah, they thought it was a controversial topic that had been mostly covered in one way. MTV and Oprah put out brain scans that were manipulated, graphically manipulated, to show holes in the brain. And MDMA does not cause holes in your brain, but they showed pictures that were really scary. So Peter Jennings said they, they viewed every other documentary on MDMA, and they said these are all more or less degrees of propaganda, and they were going to do the honest show. So that was, for them, this idea that there was something that they could do that would be new, and they took a lot of heat from it. But as the show developed, the ABC network got more and more confident. So it kept being moved when it was going to be aired to more and more promising time slots. And then, because we helped them so much, they agreed that at the 6 o'clock news, the World News Tonight by Peter Jennings, they put a two-minute special just about the PTSD study and interviewed Michael about it and put that on the news. And then earlier in that same day, and the day before, Peter Jennings was on Larry King talking about the show, and talking about how the main thing he learned was how willing the government was to use propaganda and how shocked he was by that. So there's occasional breakthroughs through the media. It's been fantastic. Absolutely. And that, that was major for us in a lot of ways. And in fact, that's what convinced Peter Lewis, one of the things, to give us a quarter million dollars to do MDMA research. Because he, again, is not that interested in MDMA for PTSD. He's interested in ending the drug war. And one way you do that is to take the credibility of the government, which has been used to scare parents and show the parents that their credibility is not really what they thought it was. So that's where the research has this link to the drug war, is that we show honest information that takes these exaggerated things and criticizes them from a scientific base. So I think we're in a really good shape. We have the potential that has not existed in 30 or 40 years to take psychedelics through the system. And I think, actually, if we blow it, it's because of our own arrogance or impatience or who knows what other thing I don't know that I'm doing that I'm actually, you know, persistence will win the day. So I think we have a tremendous opportunity. For those of you who are still with us, I'm sure you found Rick's thoughts as provocative as I do. And I firmly believe that when my grandchildren pass their tests and get their psychedelic driver's licenses someday, that they're going to have Rick Doblin to thank for that. Personally, I think Rick's contribution to the tribe is beyond measure. And if you'd like to show your own appreciation to Rick, why don't you become a member of MAPS? That is, if you aren't already a part of that uh, important effort, just go to www.maps.org and check out some of the ways you can get involved in their online community. 
Be sure to send them a little contribution. They can use the money quite wisely, I'm sure. And I guess I should also mention our own website, or to be more precise, I guess, our family of websites. If you go to our main homepage at matrixmasters.com, you're going to find links to our alternative news summaries, our .netter experiment, and Planque Norte, which is the section of the site where our MP3s are located. If you're only interested in the audio section, you can go there directly. That address is palenquenorte.org. P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E-N-O-R-T-E dot org. At both of those sites, you're uh, also going to be able to find a link to our podcast page, and that's where we've got the RSS feed for this program and the others here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I guess that's about it for today. I hope you'll join us in our next salon when we'll be hearing from John Hanna, the producer of the famous Mind States conferences. In John's presentation for us, he'll be talking about drug-inspired metaphysical concepts. And unless I miss my guess, you're going to want to be with us for that one, too. So thanks again for joining us here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.